Well, good morning. I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at the passage found in verses 18 through 22. But before we get to reading the Word of God, I just want to make two things, share two things with you this morning. It was our initial intent for us to do a, uh, to install our Board of Deacons this morning. Um, we have postponed that because it's really difficult for us to get the whole group together, especially during the summer. And so um, um, we've been trying to see when people are available, when they're not. And so we'll be installing them later, early fall. We're looking at September. Um, so we've just put it off till then. Um, hey, we all want to get away and enjoy some of the, you know, the 12 weeks of summer that we get, right? Um, second of all, and I asked them if I could do this, Pastor Thomas and his wife Kristen this week um, celebrated the arrival of Jonathan Arthur Fisher on Monday evening. And so we praise God. Kristen is doing well, and so is baby. Yes, by all means. It's life. We celebrate life. So I don't know if they're in the room here today or if they're, or if they're in the nursery or where they're at, but we, we, uh, if they can hear me wherever they are, we just, yep, there's Thomas. We celebrate with you, and we thank God for Jonathan Arthur. So praise God for that. With that in mind, let's turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. And here is what we read. And it says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does... The patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Fathers, we look at this passage today. I pray that you would give us understanding. I pray that you would help us to feast from your word this morning and to see you more clearly and to draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a difficult passage. I don't have to tell you that. But let me begin with this thought. Water and oil don't mix. I think everybody understands that. Everybody knows that. If you were to take, as an example, water and mix it with the oil in your car engine, you would kill your engine. Don't go and try this. Just take my word for it. And in the same way, if I could just use that to bounce into this, 
What we're going to see today is that you cannot add a religious system of works to Jesus. It's not Jesus and. It's not Jesus plus. It's Jesus alone. The way to eternal life, the way to true godliness, to true righteousness is through Jesus and Jesus alone. And my hope is to show you how Jesus brought that understanding to the people of his day. And so the first thing I'd like to do is I'd like to show you the old and empty way starting at verse 18. And so verse 18 we saw, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Again, just if you haven't been with us, let me just set the stage for a moment here. The religious environment in Jesus' day had become deeply rooted in man-made traditions that became religious rules. Man-made, man-imposed Religious rules that were adhered to so strictly that if you didn't observe those rules, you were considered to be unrighteous and ungodly. You see, what it, what it transpired over time was that their spirituality, if you will, became contingent not on the state of their heart with God, but only on their outward religiosity. And so... When Jesus comes along proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God that it was at hand and he's calling people to repent and he's teaching with authority, he's also correcting the teaching that the people have come to embrace from the spiritual leaders of their day. And so now Jesus comes and he's correcting their understanding of what true godly spirituality is. And it didn't quite fit and look like what was being practiced in Judaism that day. And this created a conflict between Jesus and his disciples from the rest of society, among other religious teachers and their disciples. And the issue that we see in this passage that caused part of the conflict is the issue of fasting. Now, we know and we understand the very simple concept of fasting, fasting is to abstain from eating for a period of time. And that is, in essence, exactly what it is. In their day, fasting had become a pillar of Judaism or the Jewish religious system. Now, traditionally, fasting was practiced in times of national tragedy, or if there was a national crisis, or if you had something going on in your own life, and so you would then personally take the time to fast. And it was always associated, or typically associated, with grief or mourning. It was a time when you would fast that you would also call out to God. It was never something you did as an act of celebration or rejoicing. It was a time through which you demonstrated that I'm empty and I'm lacking. 
And when, when you gave yourself to fasting, you coupled it with prayer because you were calling out to God. And, and it was in essence, as John Piper puts it, an offering of emptiness to God in hope. It was an acknowledgement crying out to God saying, listen, Lord, without you, we're empty. Unless you intervene in this situation, we're left in need. Only you can supply what's needed in this case. You are what we need. And so this had become, fasting had become this tradition that was practiced very strictly. What's interesting, however, though, is that under the old covenant system, God had only commanded Israel to fast once a year during the day or on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was a day in which you offered sacrifices to God for your sins. It was a day in which you mourned your sins and you mourned your sinfulness and the cost of your sins. That was the only time God commanded Israel to fast. But by the time Jesus comes on the scene... Strict religious traditions have been implemented, and religious groups such as the Pharisees have implemented strict policies that you must fast on Mondays and Thursdays. And anyone not following suit, not doing this, was considered unrighteous or unspiritual at least. But the Pharisees took this this forced fasting to a whole new level. They would do it in a public setting on the street corners. They would dress in rags and they would mark up their faces as though they were mourning and grieving. And they did it for the only purpose so to, in order to be seen. And so you knew that on Mondays and Thursdays, if you walked down to the town market, where, the, where all the people congregated and associated to do business, or at the city gates, you could bet that you could see a Pharisee on the street corner fasting. And so here they would be, you'd walk, you'd walk down the street and they'd be like, oh, you looking? Oh, this is funny, but it's true. That's exactly what they were doing. They wanted to be seen as super religious, super spiritual. They wanted to be seen as a religious elite. And so they practiced this publicly. And you know what happens when, when you're associated with or you hang around people who come across as super spiritual? Have you ever had that experience? My experience has been that I begin to feel really guilty. I begin to feel really bad about myself because I'm not what they are. And that's exactly what they wanted to do. But Jesus comes along and he corrects this teaching about these religious, outward religious experiences or demonstrations. For example, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talking to his disciples says this. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. 
If you were to go further in Matthew chapter 6, you would find that Jesus says in verses 16 and 18 to his disciples that when, when you fast, meaning his disciples, that they were not to, not, to, not to look gloomy like those hypocrites, speaking of the Pharisees, who disfigured their faces to be seen by others. And so when Jesus and his disciples aren't fasting like the Pharisees and the other religious groups that are raising up or rising up. And they notice that Jesus is a religious leader, but he's not fasting on Mondays and Thursdays, and neither are his disciples. This ruffled a lot of feathers, upsetting the status religious quo. Who does he think he is? Who does he think he is that he has the right to change our religious practices. But here's the thing. The religious practice of fasting, because that's the focus here, was of no use, of no benefit whatsoever. It was void and empty of any kind of benefit. Because, you see, they had come to believe that it was merely the act of fasting, if you will, that put them in good graces with God. Doing the thing, whatever the thing is, in this case it was fasting, doesn't matter your heart condition. As long as you do this, then you're in the good graces of God and you are more spiritual than people around you who don't do it the way you do it. You see... They trusted in their actions while their hearts were far from God. That's a very common thing today still, isn't it? Many believe that it's their religious conduct, specific things they do the acts themselves that put them in good graces with God. But it's not true. I don't want to give any examples at this point, but I want you to take a moment right now, and I want you to run through the recesses of your mind and ask yourself, is this true of me? Do I trust in my religious activity while my heart is far from God? Now hold on to that thought. Because I want you to understand something. What we see here in this passage is that there's no benefit to it. It's, it's empty and it's useless. But I want us to understand that there is a new and better way, at least and that was how it was introduced in Jesus' day. And the thing is, Jesus is the new and better way. Look at verse 19. So we're going to continue to build the case here. Verse 19. And Jesus said to them, remember, they've come and they're like, why aren't you guys fasting? And Jesus says this. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, that's a rhetorical question, at least for them it was. And then he 
gives the answer. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Again, taking a moment to unpack this a little bit. In their day, they did weddings differently than we do in our culture today. On the wedding day, the, the bride and the bridesmaids were ready and waiting for the bridegroom to come and appear. They didn't know what time he was coming. They didn't know what time the bridegroom would appear, but they were ready. And it wasn't until the bridegroom appeared that the wedding festivities and the celebration began. And their celebrations would often last a week and up to 10 days. Talk about a wedding. You see, a wedding, as we would, as we agree, is always accompanied with celebration because it is a time of celebration, right? I mean, how horrible would it be if a wedding was not a time of celebration? That'd be terrible. And a celebration is always accompanied with feasting. It was never a time for mourning and fasting. In fact, they had implemented rules in their day that, that did not permit you to fast during a wedding feast because it was a time of celebration. Imagine, just let, let it run through your heads. One of these Pharisees shows up on a Thursday to your wedding. And he's got, he's got the ash on his face and he's dressed in rags. And it's a time of celebration. It's time to feast. And they're like, let's dig in. He's like, I can't. I'm fasting. Oh. Right? It sounds funny, but that's the reality. So they put rules in place. You can't do that. This is a time for celebration. It's a time for feasting. And in the same way, Jesus is using this example to say, look. My disciples are celebrating. And why are they celebrating? Because I have come. But why was that reason for celebration? Because Jesus brought the good news that the long-awaited kingdom of God that they had been waiting for was now upon them. It was finally at hand. And Jesus himself was the king of the kingdom of God. He was there. They were now in the presence of their God and king. They were in the presence of the one who had come to save them. Listen, they were in the presence of the one that they would call on when they would fast and pray. And here he is. So now there's no need for fasting because he's right here. This was no time for mourning or fasting. This was a time for celebration and feasting. That's the idea Jesus is trying to get across to them. But the Pharisees and their disciples and even the disciples of John totally missed it. Why? Because they were trusting in religious ritualism instead of God. There's a lesson for us here. If we're not careful, our religious activity can actually lead us away from Jesus. Think about how easily that can happen. 
You see, even in my own life, for years, I would get up early in the morning before I raced off to work and quickly read a passage of Scripture. You know why? So that I could say I had read the Word of God that day. So that when I prayed later in the day, I could feel good about myself because I had been faithful, Lord. I was in the Word. How many times haven't we read poems that talk about, you know, oh, I'm, you know, God turning you away because you didn't do this and you didn't do that, right? And so I would read these poems and I would feel so convicted and so guilty. So I needed to make sure that I needed to get up early enough to make sure I would at least read two or three verses. Take about 30 seconds to think on them and then skedaddle. And never think about it again the rest of the day because I had checked my box. You see, it had nothing to do with my relationship with Jesus. It had everything to do with self-righteousness, hoping that God would honor it. You see, many people who call themselves Christians today, and this, this isn't new, it's been the whole time, Many of those who call themselves Christians will even live like practical atheists during the day, and that was very much my case. But at the end of the day, pray the Lord's Prayer, believing, you know what? I may have lived like the devil during the day, but I said the Lord's Prayer at night. Mm hmm. And you know, I've been told that before. After I entered ministry, I went, I was doing a hospital visit with someone in the hospital. Um, I got called to the hospital, not, not particularly a, a regular church-going family, but they were convinced when I was visiting with them and I, I was brought in that I remember the one gentleman telling me, hey, I don't go to church, but you know what? I pray the Lord's Prayer every night, right? And he said to me, that counts for something, doesn't it? No! It doesn't. It's empty ritualism that benefits you nothing. But let's not even look out there. Let's just look inside. Just, let's just look at us. How many, how many Christians that I believe are genuine Christians believe that they're in God's good graces because they dress a certain way? How many believe they're in God's good graces because they do certain things? I may not go to church regularly, but I make sure I give my offering. Great, right? But what's the benefit to you in all of that? I never miss Wednesday night Bible study. We used to have Wednesday night Bible study. I never miss it. We're there. The church door is open. We are there. We are faithful. We're committed. Right? I actually remember one guy telling me that in all his life, he had never missed a Sunday morning service. Good for you. What does that benefit you? In the eyes of God. 
when your heart is far from him? The answer is nothing. When I think about this, I have many more examples of my own, in my own life, of things that I used to do. What about you? What are the religious activities in your life that you have a tendency to trust in? Thinking that because I did this, I can now feel better about myself because God will be pleased that I've done this. That's exactly what's happening here in this passage. So we need to be careful. Because we can be fiercely dedicated to religious practices and yet be in total opposition to God. In fact, John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, empty ritual is always the true enemy of true godliness. Let that sink in. So then the question is, well, how do do I know where I stand? I think this passage will answer that question for us as we go on. How do I know if I'm merely religious? Or how do I, how do, what is, what's my life telling me? Well, let's follow along here. Let's find out. Moving on in verse 20, Jesus says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. Now he's talking about his disciples. He's telling these people that have come to him, asking why they're not fasting. He says, the day's coming where they will. See, in the, in the original language, the idea is given that when he says um, when, that he'll be taken away, the idea is given that he'll be snatched away violently. And I could be wrong, but I think this is in reference to his sudden and violent death on the cross that was coming. And Jesus is saying that on that day, his disciples would fast. But it wouldn't be because it was religiously mandated. It's because for them it would be a true time of mourning. Because he had been taken from them and their mourning was as a result of their relationship with him. He's gone. He died. And so now we're fasting and we're grieving. Not empty religious ritual, but the expression of the heart because of their relationship with him. And that is how God had always intended it to be. That's how God intends every religious practice to be, an expression of the heart, not empty religious practice. It's a sign of relationship with God, not mere outward religiosity. So how can we know if we're merely religious? How can we know whether our display is genuine godliness? I think we can ask ourselves some questions. Ask yourself this one. I think this one's really important. Would it make a difference if Jesus was in the picture or not? Right now, today, 
See, here's the thing. Jesus is true God, and he is true man. He's fully God. He's fully man. He is real. He's alive today. He's not just in God form. He is still in his human form this day. He's real. And a true believer has a real relationship with him. Would your religious conduct change in any way if all of a sudden Jesus was not in the picture? Do you do what you do because it's a matter of the heart? Because of your relationship with Jesus? Or is it simply to appease some God who's out there somewhere in the cosmos? See, when Jesus would be taken from them, they would mourn because it was out of a relationship with him. That's when they would fast. But then Jesus drives this point further because we haven't reached the full point of this passage. And it's not just that Jesus is the new and better way. Jesus actually shows us in this passage that he is the only way. And that's the third thing I want to show you as we're moving into the full point here. Jesus, the new and better way. And Jesus, the only way. Look at verse, uh, reading on in verse 21 and 22. Jesus gives this strange statement. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old and the tear or and a worse tear is made, excuse me. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. The new wine is for fresh wineskins. What? What's this got to do with fasting? That's all we wanted to know, Jesus. But Jesus gave to the heart of the matter, Right? That's what Jesus always does. He gets to the heart of the matter. And he's saying, your ritualism is empty. It's worthless. And he's saying, look, my disciples, they're celebrating because of their relationship with me. They believe who I am. And then he uses, brings in these kind of parabolic examples, kind of like parables and he makes, gives these two examples that are kind of somewhat strange. But you remember, the first one here was that no one sews a, a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. Now, get this. Believe it or not, for those of you that are younger in here, believe it or not, there was a time, there was a time when it was unthinkable to buy pants with holes on their knees and hips. Can anybody amen that? Is it true? Right? You didn't buy them that way. Think of all the money you're spending in air, right? On holes. No, but listen, growing up, that was not a fad. That was not a thing. And I remember my mother patching Almost every pair of pants 
that I had because I'd wear holes in them on the knees, right? She'd do that before I outgrew the pants. And so, I mean, I was a really holy person because we had patches all over. You see, even at that young age, I understood. And my mother taught me that you do not use new unshrunk fabric to patch holes in worn out jeans. You just don't do that. We understood that mixing the old with the new would ruin both. And I remember times where we were left with no option but to do that. And it was embarrassing because, you know, in those days, younger, you would actually go to school with patched jeans. And I remember going to school one day and I had this new patch of new cloth on my jeans and it would literally shrivel up until you had this ball on your pant leg. Right? It just looked terrible. It was embarrassing. But the reality is, within a few weeks, it would have torn apart. Right? That's just how it works. And that's kind of what Jesus is getting at here. That's what he wants them to understand. You can't mix the old with the new because you'll ruin both. What, but what exactly is he getting at? Jesus is saying, I believe what I have come to implement as the king of the kingdom of God is so radically different than the religious system that you have implemented here in, in Israel that the two cannot be mixed. Whether it's the old covenant system or whether it's this religious Judaism that you have developed, they are absolutely, completely not, you can't mix the two. They cannot be mixed. So the point that Jesus is getting at is this. You can't take Jesus or the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, and mix it with self-implemented religious traditions. Remember, they were frustrated and upset that they weren't fasting. It was their religious tradition. And Jesus is going, no, 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 no. You can't mix what I'm bringing with this system that you've implemented. It doesn't work. If you do, you'll ruin them both. You can't take the gospel of Jesus and mix it with religious works of self-righteousness because they'll both become useless. Jesus used another example in verse 22. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Okay, so I myself didn't fully understand how this worked either. But here's what my research told me. That wine in those days was stored in bags made of animal skin. Fresh animal skin. Because they would make these bags or these pouches out of it, and when they put the wine in, there was this elasticity to the skin, and as the wine fermented, the skin would stretch. But you couldn't use old wine skins for new wine because it had lost its elasticity. It had become hard and brittle. So if you put new wine in there, as it would begin to ferment, it would break apart the wineskins. It would crack and fall apart, and you'd lose both. 
Again, what's Jesus getting at here? And I, I believe it's this, and I could stand to be corrected. Whether it was the old covenant religious system or self-imposed religious ritual, the two were completely incompatible with what Jesus was implementing. You see, Jesus didn't come to patch the old religious system or any other religious system. Jesus didn't come to add simply what you were lacking. That's important for us to understand. He came to replace it all together. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, we read this. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. This is important. Verse 7, for if the first covenant, that's the old covenant system, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. We're like, whoa, 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 hold on a minute here. Isn't that what Jesus came to do? Jesus came to add what was lacking to the old covenant? No, he didn't. He came to replace it in its entirety. He says, it was this new covenant is enacted on better promises. Well, what was the problem? He says, if the first covenant had been faultless. Well, the question is, what was the problem with the first covenant? And the problem was this. And you could read it if you read further in Hebrews chapter 8. That it was a two-way covenant. Remember, in the old covenant, it wasn't just God who made a covenant with Israel. Israel joined in and together they made this covenant. It was a two-way street. It was a covenant based on God said, if you do these things, then I will do these things. It was a two-way covenant. And the problem was not with, not with God's side of the covenant. It was with the people's side of the covenant. That was what the problem was. Because listen... Either they didn't do what was required, and boy, didn't we see that in the Old Testament? If you follow Israel's story, how quickly they broke this covenant with God. So number one, they either didn't do what was required of the covenant, which put them in violation of the covenant, which then God would, had said that he would enact curses upon them, or they performed the required rituals, but only as an external performance apart from true heart a true heart of God or for God and faith. And Jesus is like, nah, this doesn't work. Because the man's side of the covenant, he just can't keep it. And so Jesus comes and he implements a completely new covenant that's incompatible with the old. He does away with the old covenant and brings in a new covenant. And this covenant is a one-way covenant. It's a covenant that he himself makes. It'd be a covenant by which he, through his actions, through the sacrifice of himself, would then bring people to himself and transform them by giving them a new heart and placing his spirit within them, and then writing his laws on their heart. 
not on tablets of stone like the old covenant. So you see, Jesus came not to offer new religious rituals. He came to bring a relationship. Yes, he did not come to implement new outward rituals. He came to bring inward transformation that would then lead to a visible, transformed life because he placed a new heart within you. And the only way for you to enter into this new covenant through Jesus is by faith in what he, ha- he himself has done to receive what he has done. It's the only way. And it's when by faith you trust in Jesus that he places within you not a better heart, a new heart. He places within you a new spirit, his spirit. And he writes his laws on your heart. And out of that is born the desire to want to glorify God. You are now Joined to Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection. You are now one with him. You have a relationship with him. It's the only way that you can be saved. And it's the only thing that will get you into heaven and into the good graces of God. It's not by your outward religious activity. It's through that inward heart transformation that Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. And so here's the reality. We need to ensure that we are not trusting in our outward religious activity. Any outward religious activity in our life should be be the result of a changed heart, a transformation that happened on the inside. Because we are now in a relationship with him. Folks, Jesus is the new and the better way. That is what he came to proclaim. The only way into the kingdom of God is through Jesus Christ and him alone. And the question we need to answer is not, is this, am I trusting in my works Or am I trusting in Jesus? How do you answer that question? Would you pray with me? Lord, this morning, I hope that our eyes would be open, that we would see what your word is telling us here this morning. Jesus is the new and better way in comparison to the old covenant or any other man-induced, man-implemented religious system. In fact, Jesus is the only way. It's only by faith in Jesus that we come into the good graces of God. So I pray, Lord, that we would not trust in the things that we do, 
but that we would trust in Jesus, only Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that anything visible in our life, any religious activity, that it would be the result of the transformation that you are working within us. That it is the result of a new heart that you've placed within us and your spirit that you've placed within us as we are being conformed into the image of Jesus himself. Lord, I just ask that nobody in this room would be deceived. Lord, if we are trusting in our works, would you take that away from us? Destroy it for us. Strip us of anything that gives us confidence in anything else save Jesus Christ alone. And so, Father, I pray as we sang at the beginning of the service, the day when we look, we will see his face. We shall behold Jesus. That we would finally understand that we would by faith now already understand. The only reason we got there was by faith in Jesus Christ. As we submitted to him and he transformed us. Lord, give us joy in Jesus on what we do. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would just work within us this morning. If anybody would like prayer after the service, I would invite you to come up and we would love to pray with you. So Lord, just give us joy in Jesus and in him alone. Amen.